Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. You and I set to be swallowed up by behemoth rival land securities. Groundbreaking new research could help us meet both housing and net zero targets. Youth homelessness surges to shocking new levels. The new exhibition exploring a new type of architecture born in the 21st century. And Grimshaw unveils plans for electric flying taxi vertiports. My name is Zoe Cave, I work at Open City, and I will be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to The London. My guest this week is Alpa Dapani. Alpa is an architect at the London Borough of Waltham Forest. Welcome to the show. Hi Zoe, great to be with you. Our first story is all to do with what looks like a massive acquisition in the world of London property development, which has been reported by the AJ. You and I, a sort of design-led newcomer among property development companies, is due to be snapped up by its long-term rival, the FTSE-listed behemoth Land Securities. Um, For our listeners who haven't heard of them, Land Securities is the firm that built the walkie-talkie in the city. Originally known as Cathedral Group, the development company, well known for its ongoing redevelopment of the old EMI vinyl factory in Hayes with architects Studio Egret West, rebranded itself UNI in 2014 after being purchased by Development Securities for just a mere £27.4 million. The latest buyout, which is set to cost roughly £190 million, comes after UNI reported a turnover of just £46 million and an £87 million loss pre-tax in the financial year ending March 2021. The company's half-year loss prompted a board shake-up and sparked an ongoing programme to dispose of what they call non-core development and trading assets. Instead, they're focusing on a handful of, uh, of core regeneration projects. These include Studio Egret West's Mayfield in Manchester and Morden Wharf in London, where there are several large skyscrapers by Dutch star architects OMA, um, which have recently won planning permission. Now, the developer, which is also listed on the London Stock Exchange, is recommending investors sell up to Land Securities, which is offering to buy all stock in the company for £1.49 per share. Uh, So this deal would see investors receive around 70% more than UNI shares had been worth prior to this announcement better than any returns I get on my savings. Um, In a statement, the UNI board said its core regeneration model, quote, uh, if married to the right long-term capital 
and aligned with the government's focus on rebuilding economic growth and levelling up, is more relevant than ever and represents a highly attractive opportunity to create long-term stakeholder value. The acquisition will bolster Land Securities, which is already the UK's largest commercial property developer and investor, and will see them increase investment in homes through the mixed-use projects that UNI delivers. The core regeneration projects are set to be advanced, include OMA's Morden Wharf and Allies and Morrison's Landmark Court, which both are planning. They also include uh, Urbed's Cambridge Quarter and Faraday Works and Mayfair by Studio Egret West. The list had also included an overhaul of the former London Fire Brigade headquarters at 8 Albert Embankment, which regular listeners may remember we covered in the London, although the status of the project is unclear after the then Housing Secretary, Robert Jenrick, rejected the plans in June. So, Alper, what's this all about? Perhaps you could tell our listeners a little more about you and I and about land securities and the significance of companies like these in terms of investment and renewal of London's built environment and architecture. Well, I thought the news was not that surprising because, as you said, they, uh, you and I had been operating at a loss for some time. But it is a shame because I think amongst architects especially, you and I are considered kind of one of the more design-focused developers. But, I mean, I thought it was interesting, you know, the um, is instructive sort of instructive stroke depressing to read the you and I director statement, which was, you know, couched in terms of stakeholder value, which I think kind of really says it all about what motivates development or regeneration. And um, it kind of really lays the priorities of development bare in that sense. I suppose you wonder if uh, when, a, when, a, when a smaller company gets taken, taken over by such a huge behemoth like Land Securities, if that kind of decreases the amount of risk or kind of design focus that is going to be put into their approach to development. So uh, will you now see the same kind of developments that you and I set out to achieve? I suppose that's the question. And I would have thought probably is unlikely but also maybe it's an indictment of how possible it is to foster kind of design-led development because as I say they were operating at a loss for a certain amount of time so in some sense the experiment has not succeeded as it as it might have which is depressing. Um, That leads nicely on to the next question so looking at the proposed buyout deal if it does go ahead this will see you and I once one of London's um, comparably small developers being bought out by one of the giants of the UK development industry. What does this move say about the prospects of smaller players in the development industry itself? Well, that you are going to see a lot less of them. I and mean, it's already such a huge problem. You already have uh, you know, so few smaller developers, but also smaller construction companies. You know, there's the big behemoths that are kind of at the forefront of all housing development so yeah you're going to see those smaller players pushed out and again with that that kind of agility to make more design-led decision because it all comes back to kind of shareholder you know shareholder friendly type decisions potentially you're just going to see that same kind of business as usual you're going to see the same types of faces and the same kind of approaches to development and that is a shame because I mean development the whole building industry is lagging so far behind when it comes to kind of diversity just even attending pre-app meetings or design discussions it's you know really mono in terms of culture so yeah I suppose this news kind of makes you feel that you're just going to see a continuation of that kind of monoculture. 
Our next story centres around groundbreaking new research by Arab and material cultures, investigating the scale of opportunity for circular and bio-based construction in the northeast and Yorkshire. It's not something that has been picked up very widely in the built environment or wider media so far, but it has been getting some attention recently on Instagram. As world leaders are discussing the climate crisis in Glasgow for COP26, a new pioneering report by Arab and Material Cultures has set out to address the fairly immense role of the built environment in global emissions, something critics accuse the summit for leaving off the agenda. Uh, as we've discussed on the London before, the construction industry has a huge environmental footprint that counts for nearly 40% of greenhouse gas emissions globally. Of this, the embodied carbon, so that's the carbon footprint of the extraction, processing and transportation of building materials, accounts for between 30 and 70% of a building's total emissions, rather than how much energy it takes to keep it running. Addressing the two challenges we face of meeting targets for both housing and emissions, this new study shows us the potential for bio-based materials in supplying some 500,000 new homes in the northeast of England and Yorkshire region. Bio-based materials come from living organisms, so like plants, uh, which then have been processed into a product that can be worked with. Uh, typical examples include like timber, hemp, wool, straw and wood fibre, all of which have a much lower embodied carbon than commonly used materials like steel and concrete. The authors estimate it could reduce the region's carbon footprint by 2.88 megatons of carbon dioxide equivalent. So, uh, and according to this report, adopting a bio-based building industry will not only deliver houses and bring the sector in line with current net zero targets, but also, political buzzwords here we come, drive local economies through job creation and improve people's health and well-being. Um, so I'll put the report's proposed model addresses the need for housing and the climate crisis while simultaneously creating jobs and improving the landscape and people's health, things which can seem antithetical to one another. What do you make of the report by Arab and Material Cultures? Well, I think it's really exciting. It's really interesting. I think the real challenge, though, is going to be, you know, can these products be kind of developed as they're developed can the sort of safety and regulation testing happen sort of concurrently so that these technologies can actually be implemented uh, within construction you know for example like uh, structural timber so CLT you know the use of that has been so curtailed by regulations post Grenfell um, and CLT is not a new technology you know and there's this sort of feeling that uh, innovation and sustainability and regulation are all like mutually exclusive. So I think CLT is a really good example of how, you know, regulation can get in the way of um, being able to kind of harness new technologies. So there's that. I think there's also kind of just the issue of the concrete lobby, which has just enormous power to totally derail kind of the use of alternative materials and just kind of culture in construction and even in planning that is really old fashioned and quite resistant to innovation and kind of resistant to doing things in a different way you know I think the you know the circular economy part of it is also really exciting um, but we already know that a green recovery would kind of create new jobs you know just kind of insulating homes would do that so um, you know that that is interesting not necessarily a new idea but the location is obviously really important you know because that whole region is you know so emblematic of kind of industrial um, growth. 
you know, with coal mines and the kind of economic devastation that came with the closure of those coal mines. So I think, you know, the report is kind of potentially quite a neat and sort of hopeful story. And I think what is um, some ways quite striking about the report is that much of what is it suggests isn't new at all. Um, like you said about the CLT, but also a lot of these materials have been around since the beginning of, of human history. What are the industrial or commercial or I'd even argue cultural reasons we don't make more use of materials like these already? Um, are, are these common reasons likely to act as an impediment to adopting recommendations in the report? I think that's absolutely true. I think there is an idea that some of these technologies which have been around you know, for a really long time and they're just harnessing things that are already there. There's a there's an opinion that they're not sophisticated. And there is an idea that, you know, glass and steel buildings are impressive, are modern, um, you know, say something about progress and capitalism. And maybe there's a there's an idea that these kind of more organic or natural materials are in some way not modern, not sophisticated, not appropriate for progress. So yeah, perhaps there is a kind of cultural reimagining that needs to happen about you know what are the kind of materials that we should be using right now and what do they denote about societies and cities and I think also there's there's with lots of these materials that are suggested I think there's like a lot more care throughout their life cycle and so I think that like if you think about like thatch roofs like that was that's a craft that you needed like some someone specific who could like maintain and look after it um yeah like the kind of the care and the stewardship that goes towards more like organic materials yeah that's a cultural idea isn't it that um you know that we don't want to have to look after buildings you know that if if you have to keep maintaining them then in some way it's not working but that's a bit of a false imagining anyway because we do have to maintain and look after buildings you know anyone who lives in a drafty victorian terrace like i do knows that there's you know there's always like cracks and this and that that you've got to sort out and same with concrete buildings which is why we have you know, massive failure of kind of lots of post-war architecture. So the idea that you don't have to, you know, commit to any kind of stewardship to a building once it's up is just obviously bogus anyway. So, yeah, there, there, there does have to be a reimagining about how we're supposed to look after buildings. Before I move on to our next story, I just want to stop and say a big thank you to Russ Edwards, Daniel Jenkins and Ramesh Kanabar, uh, who all three signed up last week to donate the equivalent of a flat white to Open City, the charity that produces the London. Um, at the moment, we are asking for those of you who, who are able to afford it to donate the equivalent of a flat white once a month to us so that we can keep this show free, accessible, honest and inclusive, things that we think are super important when it comes to talking about the built environment. Um, If you aren't able to afford it, that's fine. There are other ways that you can show your support by listening to the show, sharing it amongst friends, giving us support on social media, all of which is also super valuable to us. If you are able to and you do think what we talk about is important enough that everyone should be able to listen for free, then go to open-city.org.uk forward slash flat white. Thank you very much and on to the next story. Our next item focuses on shocking new statistics from the charity Centrepoint, which has revealed that homelessness amongst young people has increased by 40% over the past five years. It's something that has been reported on by Tribune magazine. 121,000 young people across England approached their local authority due to homelessness or risk of homelessness in 2019-2020 a massive increase from the estimated 84,000 back in 2017-2018. 
Um, it's not only young people, with rough sleeping more generally hitting a record high in London last year. A recent count found 11,018 sleeping on the capital streets, almost double the figure witnessed a decade ago. The data reveals, somewhat unsurprisingly, not everyone is equally affected. England has a black population of just 3.5%, but black people made up 10% of those at risk of homelessness or already subject to it. This is a persistent problem and its inhumanity is exacerbated by the fact we have more than 268,385 long-term empty homes in England, shown by recent government stats. In the capital alone, there are roughly 22,000 homes unoccupied. To help that sink in, that's almost two houses for every rough sleeper in London. Meanwhile, the article points out homelessness remains a criminal offence. The Vagrancy Act, which was brought in after the Napoleonic Wars to clear the streets of returning ex-soldiers, was still being used to prosecute more than 10 people a week earlier this year. Interestingly, Prime Minister Boris Johnson has committed to scrapping the law, but as of yet, no date has been set for its repeal. Looking forward, Rishi Sunak has announced a commitment of £640 million a year to go towards tackling rough sleeping and homelessness, but this figure is considerably lower than the £750 million the government claims to have spent on homelessness this year alone, raising questions that some in need of help could miss out. And meanwhile as a kind of context undertone to this, cuts to universal credit have put a further 100,000 renters at risk of eviction. Um, Alpa, why is homelessness, uh, particularly among young and marginalised people, such a big issue and one that is getting worse across the UK and in London in particular? Well, we have a massive affordability crisis, don't we? So we've talked for years about a housing crisis, which is sort of concentrated on the supply and demand aspect. But we know that house builders are are producing huge amounts of housing. Taylor Wimpy recorded record profits last year. So it's not that we don't have housing, but we have an affordability issue. Um, And that doesn't look like it's going away. And we have an issue with secure tenancies as well. And I think all these things are exacerbating to to mean that, you know, we've got these shocking numbers on, on homelessness, which really just shouldn't be acceptable in this country. And from your experience, what are people in, in local government doing to tackle it? Yeah, you know, one thing that, you know, that local authorities can do and should do is at least achieve the kind of minimum requirements on affordable housing for all the developments that are coming forward. There is a lot of development coming forward. Whether the amount of affordable is as it should be across the whole of London is really debatable. So that is one thing that local authorities should be doing. Um as well as criminalising homelessness, there are punitive measures built into our cities, uh, something that's dubbed like anti-homeless architecture. Um, for you, how has the increasingly like financialised and the aesthetics of, lux- of like luxury of our built environment, of our cities, contributed to this crisis? Yeah, it's certainly true that a lot of development can is actively hostile to certain people in society, yeah, I think those kind of measures are just inhumane, essentially. you I don't think you can really um, say anything else about them. But I think that, yeah, they are kind of sort of stakeholder type decisions that are made in a very sanitised environment where, you know, those kind of discussions about development are so removed from, you know, how will this affect people? Because they're operating at a scale that is all about the kind of financial implications. So the idea of how it affects people. But I think the point about, you know, helping people 
who are homeless into transitioning into you know finding secure homes that is obviously true there's also a big point about secure employment I mean so many people are employed in ways that are totally precarious I mean that even if they are in work they still might be homeless or they might be you know very close to homelessness it's the precariousness of job and precariousness of of housing that's probably got has got us those two things um and also I think like the demonizing and stigmatizing of homeless people I think all three together um have really like exacerbated the issue um and I was listening to something that someone found about like the idea of like social mobility so people's ability to kind of like move out of of you know poverty or working class situations con- consistent long-term housing and tenancies was the most important factor yeah I'm not surprised to hear that and also I don't think we should be surprised to learn that I think studies show that social mobility or the ability for people to move uh, uh, up in class for want of a better expression um, or, or in terms of security and wealth has has diminished so that possibility of like increasing your financial security or social you know security has has decreased uh, over time which is really a damning indictment of a society actually but yeah I think as you say we don't have a a supportive protective uh, social welfare system anymore or or even kind of access to affordable housing or you know the kind of um, requirements to be able to receive help for housing you would have to be really desperate now it's not the same as it was you know there are people that are in housing associations and so on from decades ago who wouldn't have been in the kind of straightened circumstances that you need to be in now to to qualify for that kind of support. The government has really been banging the drum for the levelling up campaign which is designed to reinvigorate communities and boost living standards across the UK. Uh, These statistics from Centrepoint show the scale of, of the homelessness problem in the capital and shockingly London has the highest rate of poverty in the country. In your view, why is London at risk of unfairly missing out on this levelling up drive? It depends on how seriously you really take this levelling up agenda and whether you really believe it's more than just a kind of dog whistle to certain regions and a certain electoral base. And I think, yeah, it potentially does exclude London But I think that's a deliberate part of the messaging of levelling up. So, you know, anyone who lives in London knows that it's, you know, inequality is totally rife and, you know, there is massive poverty and deprivation uh, and it's it's almost exaggerated because of the kind of obvious inequalities that exist. Our next story is all to do with a new exhibition about the architecture of data centres, which has now opened at the Roker Gallery. Powerhouse explores the physical world of data centres, showcasing proposals and existing designs by architecture practices around the globe. So that's from like vast complexes in remote locations to retrofitted buildings in urban centres. By 2025, worldwide data traffic will have grown by 61% to a number that I can't fathom, 175 zettabytes, which uh, with roughly 75% of the population having at least one data interaction every 18 seconds. Um, Those are statistics from the International Data Corporation show. Um, Exhibition curator Claire Dowdy said, data centres power modern life, and yet they're rarely considered as pieces of architecture. But as they mushroom around the globe, it's time we thought of data centres as a peculiar and peculiarly challenging new building typology. 
The journalist and architectural historian Tom Ravenscroft has curated a special section focusing on London's data centres. He said, quote, Data centres are the most interesting and important new building typology in a generation, yet they are paid almost no architectural attention. In London and other cities, they tend to be hidden in plain sight, but these secretive buildings deserve more attention. The exhibition will explore architectural styles and concepts for the future of data centres, including Arab's proposal to retrofit disused oil rigs, um, and will address the industry's colossal carbon footprint and the novel ways they are attempting to mitigate it. Powerhouse is a free exhibition at the Roker Gallery and runs until the 28th of February. Um, Alpert, could you describe to our listeners the unique architecture of some of these buildings? A lot of these data centre buildings, I have to say, kind of have the appearance that you might expect, which is sort of, you know, modern, vast warehouse I think what's interesting is this idea that something that is supposedly intangible, like we think of the internet as being sort of invisible, has a pretty tangible physical presence. That is very interesting and not something that we probably recognise in our popular imagination. But then having said that is not necessarily new either. I mean, uh, you used to get telephone exchange buildings, which are quite enormous because they used to have to have the big floor to ceiling height. So the idea that there were spaces, you know, in the city to facilitate kind of invisible connectivity, that's not new. I suppose the fact that we're going to need so many of these data centres, that is new, but maybe only for now. I mean, those kind of telephone exchange buildings are being demolished and maybe in 50 years, 100 years, we're going to see these data centres turned into something else. JLL, the real estate company, predicts European data centre demand will rise by a third in 2021 alone. So with this in mind, how significant are data centres in shaping the architecture of the 21st century? Could these centres, which produce an enormous amount of heat, be combined with other uses such as housing offices or leisure space? Yeah, how are they going to be absorbed into the landscape of the city? But also, I mean, I guess they have to be terribly secure, don't they? So it's kind of like, how are you going to manage these kind of mix of uses if that's something well it's probably something that is going to be necessary because they they require so much space it's not really feasible for these data centers to to take up so much space without having another purpose these kind of uh enormous centers are sort of parked out in kind of black sites you know black sites in our imagination but i think the point as i understand it is actually there are more of them around us within cities than we realize and yeah, maybe it is good that they become more visible and that we do get more of a tangible sense of, you know, what it means to be connected all the time. It's not completely carbon neutral to be just like on the Internet and firing off emails and buying Bitcoin. We know all of those things uh, use up energy. So maybe we ought to be confronted with that a bit more. Our final story this week was covered in the AJ. It's all to do with the news that transport specialist architect Grimshaw has unveiled plans to build 25 electric flying taxi Vertiports around the UK. The practice is working with contractors McDonald and Ferrovile to deliver a new generation of electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft facilities, um, providing the infrastructure for landing, recharging, and taking off. It has also been announced these facilities will accommodate electric flying aircraft designed by Bristol-based Vertical Aerospace and Lilium. Vertical Aerospace recently secured a $200 million investment from a group of investors involving Rolls-Royce and Microsoft's venture capital fund, M12. The company said it hoped to start flights by the middle of this decade. 
The first Vertiports are proposed to be built in Oxford and Cambridge for passengers making to travel to and from Heathrow Airport, which is part owned by Ferrovile. Grimshaw partner Andy Thomas said the deal paved the way for the practice to, quote, continue to shape the future of sustainable travel across the UK and internationally. He went on to say that delivering networks of zero carbon transportation can only be realised with collaboration and innovative action across the industry. Um, Alpa, what do you make of this story? What does this level of investment in such a futuristic and yet to be proven personal transport solution say about current priorities in the midst of COP26? You know, I find stories like this so frustrating. I think like the tagline was something like uh, new models of regional connectivity. And you just think, you know, we have one of those. We have a model of regional connectivity. It's called trains. It just needs kind of uh, investment, um, you know, and, and we already have that green infrastructure. So just let's just improve what we've got. I cannot believe that the amount of investment that's going to be needed for this whole new technology and whole new infrastructure for basically an imagined, um, you know, form of transport is more sustainable than just improving the system of rail travel, which we already have. Bizarre. I find it really odd. And it's appealing to a certain kind of person, isn't it? You know, that's only a problem. That issue of getting to the airport, that's only a problem for a very small number of people. But, you know, coming back to the point of levelling up, a thing that would really help to level up the country is good, efficient, affordable rail travel. It's just not even a complicated idea. Why can't we just invest in that? Grimshaw is putting the emphasis on sustain on the sustainable side of the electric travel, but there is still an energy cost in generating the electricity, not to mention the embodied carbon involved in building these vertiports. Um, is this the sort of iman- imaginative solution we need to reach net zero carbon or should we be looking elsewhere? No, it's not. I mean, we don't need new stuff. It's kind of like, you know, David Attenborough saying we all just need to kind of consume less. It's a sort of the same thing. Let's just mend what we've got and let's not start throwing our money at a load of new junk. And this new junk is not insignificant. I mean, you're talking about creating whole new stations to allow for this technology and so on and what's that going to do to our cities as well where are they going to go what are they going to look like they're they're probably not going to be small so just let's stop buying more junk and let's just improve what we've got alpa thank you so much for coming on the London. please could you tell our listeners a little bit more about what you do and where they can go to find out about what you do thank you so much for having me on the London. and if people want to know more about me they can have a look on my website which is alpadapani.com and also i am quite gobby on twitter so you can find me there you've been listening to the lundown if you enjoy the show on the 13th of november we're doing a live on stage recording at 6a's south london gallery and we'd love to see you there it's a slightly more satirical slightly more humorous version of the show than what we put out every week but i think you'll really enjoy it so please come along There'll be a star panel and it starts at 3pm on Saturday. Tickets are available at open-city.org.uk. It'd be great to see you there. Thank you for listening. Open City is dedicated to making London more open, accessible and equitable. Hey. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.